Now, don't get stressed. I sometimes do, especially when tech doesn't behave, such as when fascist fridges run by AI want to order all my groceries. NBN that's too weak to do work. The hundredth update that you don't need on your laptop, you know. So how do animals cope? And what can we learn from them? Noah Snyder-Mackler in Arizona is studying lots of them in surprising places. Where do macaques, those apes, come into it? Yeah, so macaques are a species of monkey close related to humans. We share about 93% of our DNA sequence with them, so we're very, very genetically similar, more similar than we are to mice or some other model organisms, if you will. But we study this population of rhesus macaques that's off the coast of Puerto Rico on a small island called Cayo Santiago. Cayo Santiago was founded in the 1930s by a primatologist who went over to India, captured a bunch of these macaques, about 400, brought them back, plopped them on the island and said, let's start a research station here. And so they're free ranging, they form their natural groups, but they're provisioned with food because there's not their natural food on the island. They have no predators. And it's a small island, so they can't range to get a lot of food. So it's really densely populated. The macaques, they live at sea level on this small island. They're provisioned and they form their natural groups and it allows us to collect lots of observational data, lots of non-invasive samples, and also once a year we're able to trap them and draw blood samples so we can look at things longitudinally in their cells. And so it's this really nice hybrid between a lab environment with the purely captive animals into fully naturalistic studies. So we can think of it as like semi-naturalistic or free-range macaques. And are you looking at how their social fabric holds together or falls apart? What makes it fall apart? Yeah. So like us, like people, these monkeys form differentiated social relationships where some individuals are more socially integrated than others. And they also have social hierarchies where those who are lower status tend to have similar features that we see in humans that are of lower social status, which is less access to resources and a less predictable environment. So we can think of this, you know, these two axes of your social environment, right? The social status that you have and how integrated or isolated you are socially as well as two different axes that both impact how much adversity you're exposed to or conversely, how much advantage you have. The animals who are at the lower end of the social hierarchy or are less integrated actually are in poorer health and live shorter lives than those who are higher up or more integrated, which mirrors a lot of what we see in the human data, and as you mentioned earlier, you know, Sir Michael Marmot's seminal Whitehall study of British civil servants showing that despite having similar income levels, those who are at a lower class in terms of the civil service ended up having higher rates of cardiovascular disease and shorter lives. So Michael Marmot, despite the knighthood, of course, is uh, Australian, he's lived in Britain for an awful long time. But the key to that is the fact that lower down, they're not only earning less, they have less control. And the higher ups, by definition, have got control. And that kind of difference also affects their well-being. And therefore, of course, as you hinted, their physiology and such like. Yeah, exactly. You can think about this, and it often is referred to as psychosocial stress, a chronic stress that we all can sometimes acutely feel, no matter who you are, where you may feel that you're either overwhelmed with what's going on or you can't predict what's going to happen next. And the less predictability you have, the more your stress response pathway is going off, 
right? And when that's chronically activated, it can exert a toll on your body physiologically over time. Could you describe those macaques and what they do if they're out of control like that? What do they look like? What do they say? <laughs> well, if they could talk, we'd ask them some really interesting questions and I'd probably have a, a very different career. I don't know. Other people would have studied them by now <laughs> and answered all the questions just by asking them. But what do they look like? How do you know they're out of control? Yeah. So how we know they're out of control, good question, is we have a really great team of researchers down there who are following them almost every day, watching them and collecting behavioral data. So noting down their interactions with others. So these are individually identifiable animals. And they are down there collecting these data. And then afterwards, we can collate these data, tally up wins and losses of little interactions. We can tally up how often they spend interacting with their close friends, how many friends they have, things like that. And then we can look at that and correlate it with other measures of their health and their reproductive output and their survival. So you do a health check on them. Exactly. So we're, the really powerful component of this research on this island is that we're able to access blood samples from these animals, much as we would with people. When you go to your doctor, we draw the blood sample, we can run standard blood chemistry panels on them, but also we can do a lot of other things, different measurements. And then with the blood samples, my research group leads a lot of work trying to look at some of the molecular changes in the immune cells of these animals. So like your white blood cells, these cells that are really important for fighting off pathogens, viruses, bacteria, they show some pretty strong molecular changes with respect to the environment of that individual outside of their genetic differences. So this is really that environment is really strongly predictive of how your immune system functions. Apart from macaques, what do you work with animals? I work with primarily three different species, rhesus macaques, another non-human primate, the gelata monkey, which is a close relative of baboons, lives in the high altitude environment, the plateau of Ethiopia only. Are they the ones with the red stripes? They are. They have a red chest patch and they're often called the bleeding heart monkey because they have this red, this really cool red chest patch. Um, and we've done a lot of work trying to understand similar questions about variation in their social environments and how that impacts reproduction and survival, but also a lot of work trying to understand how they can survive and thrive at high altitude, right? They're living at 3,000 to 4,000 meters above sea level. Right? That's high. <laughs> That's high, right? Why did they choose that place? It's weird. Mind you, that means they're an ideal group for you to study because they're relatively isolated. Exactly. So they're living in these islands in the sky, these plateaus that were formed by, you know, millennia of erosion, right, in Ethiopia. And effectively above the tree line, there aren't any large trees that are up there. So they're not up in the trees. They sleep on the cliffs at night to stay away from predators. That's their roosting site. And then they just eat grass all day. They're the cows of the primates. And they're the only non-human primate that just eats grass all the time. 90% of their diet is grass, which is very weird. They don't have specialized digestive tracts. They're not ruminants like cows, right? How are they getting all of these resources? So they're eating grass and grass and grass. And we've done a lot of work looking at their gut microbiota to see how that shifts and helps them extract more nutrients from the grass that they're eating. And so they've just been able to exploit this really unique ecological niche that other species couldn't exploit. And so that's how they've been able to thrive up in this high altitude environment. How do they get their kicks if they're up there so cold, perching on the side of the cliff <laughs> so as not to be eaten or something, and all they can do is gather together and huddle and shiver and <laughs> eat grass? How do they have fun? Did you ever notice? It's hard to tell when organisms other than ourselves are having fun, but I think we can 
intuitively feel it sometimes, especially when we're looking at the juveniles when they're romping around. So juvenile monkeys who are, you know, half a year old up to a few years old, romping around and playing around and having a wonderful time. I think the parents are a little bit more serious, right? They know they've got to get down to business. Their goal as organisms in this world is to survive and eat more grass, eat more grass, survive, <laughs> eat more grass and reproduce, right? And so they're, they're all business all the time, but the infants are definitely having a lot of fun. Is it true you actually work occasionally with dogs? Yes. So the last species that I spend a lot of work on are companion dogs, Canis familiaris. Everybody loves dogs. That's the main reason why we can study them, because people want to know more about dogs. My work is really interested in understanding what predicts changes in how different breeds and different dogs age, and also how their environments impact their age. And so they're really good models for human aging, because they've got shorter lifespans than we do, right? About seven times faster than a human. And we share our environment with them. So they're in our houses. My dog's in my office right now. So he's with me all the time. And we love our dogs, so we take care of them. So we have detailed medical records on them as well. So they're like this accelerated human cohort study that we can do. So with all these pictures of comparisons with other creatures, as well as knowledge of our own situation, what's the ultimate aim of applying this knowledge? Humans are really complex and really difficult to study. And I think we've learned a lot understanding human health and human evolution by studying people and maybe by studying single genes or very controlled environments and things like that. But there's a lot that we still don't know. And to do that, we need to look at, we need to harness and look at natural variation in the non-human world, right? In organisms where they do share some features that we have and don't share other features. And in doing so, we can identify some of the things that make us a little bit unique and also identify species that might be a really good model for understanding a particular aspect of human biology or human health. Because if you look around these days with all the advantages human beings have got and all the technology is available and all those screens they can watch all day, you'd predict if the advertising is right, that everyone will be in Shangri-La, but the measures taken both in Australia and to some extent here indicate uncertainty, upset, depression, disarray. And so there's something really to look for here, isn't there? Yeah, these diseases of despair, right, are really becoming more and more frequent in humans these days. And you would think, you're right, we, we've got everything we need. Why are we upset? But I think there's always this air of unpredictability in what's next and finding ways to navigate our new environments and cope with these new environments it can impact individuals differently, right? And it's not that we are different at the level of our DNA sequence. You know, most humans are 99.9% .9 similar to one another. It's really that we have different lived experiences, environmental experiences that give us different abilities to respond to novel stressors. And should I come back in 10 years and see how you're getting on? Yeah, uh, you, you should certainly come back and see how I'm getting on in 10 years. But as an assistant professor, I, I can tell you I feel acute stress sometimes, right? And maybe sometimes a little bit of chronic stress. So if you come back in 10 years, it may look like I have aged more than 10 years. There's optimism for you. Noah Snyder-Mackler is an associate professor at Arizona State University. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.